The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. The men that here have, as we all may have if we choose, the gift of life eternal in the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, His Son, must necessarily tend onwards and upwards to a reign where death is beneath the horizon and life flows and flushes the whole heaven. Oh, do you put your whole hand to take the poisoned gift from the claw-like hand of that hideous Queen Death? Or do you turn and take the gift of life eternal from the hands of the queenly grace? Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, Sin vs. Grace. Protestant believers in England suffered terrible persecutions during the reign of Bloody Mary. But when Queen Victoria was on the throne, evangelical Christianity flourished, and the British Empire enjoyed unparalleled prosperity and growth. Millions of people live under the tyrannical dictatorship of sin, while the grace of God exerts a kind, benevolent rule over those who know Jesus Christ as Lord. Which of these principles, sin or grace, reigns in your life? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 5 and verse 21. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Sin versus Grace. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for grace upon grace, and realize afresh that all that we have and are flows from thy bountiful heart of love. Give us to grow in knowledge of thy word, in order that we may grow in true holiness of life. Speak to each listening heart. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text is the last verse in the fifth chapter of Romans. As sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the 142nd broadcast in this series on Romans. I mention the fact because I propose to do something in this study, which I have done once before in the series. That is, I shall give almost word for word the study of another man on the text which we are considering. Very early in the series, I set forth Borum's remarkable word on the just shall live by faith. I have waited patiently for our slow arrival at our present text 
in order to present to you some pages by a great English expositor who preached at the turn of the century in Birmingham, England. Alexander McLaren was a master of the English tongue. He had also been mastered in his own soul by the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he loved with passionate devotion. He was not a great theologian, but no one could surpass him in applying truth to the daily walk of men and women who must spend most of their waking hours in the marketplace and who do not have too much time to spend in the study cultivating their spiritual life. Those who are overly critical will find in the study which we are about to consider a slight deviation from the theological explanations which I have been giving in the past, especially with the closing paragraphs of our last study. But just as a flower is no less fragrant if you happen to call it by a botanical name which is not its own, so the great truth of God is nonetheless powerful in Greece if the texts are not all sliced apart with the anatomical precision of a dialectic theologian. I can say that I have drunk at this spring and have been refreshed by this study, and I pass on to you a great exposition which I have changed only when it was necessary to eliminate a word that might be archaic in our day or add a phrase that might illuminate a point which would have been luminous in the last century. The text is, As sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign. I do not know if I can give any kind of freshness to these words, but I wish to try. To begin with, I notice the highly imaginative and picturesque form into which the apostle casts his thoughts here. He, as it were, draws back a curtain and lets us see two royal figures, which are eternally opposed and dividing the dominion between them. Then he shows us the issues to which these two rulers respectively conduct their subjects. And the question that is trembling on his lips is, under which of them do you stand? Surely that is not fossil theology, but truths that are of the highest importance and ought to be of the deepest interest to every one of us. They are to you of the highest importance, whether they are of interest or not. So first, look at the two queens who rule over human life. Sin and grace are both personified, and they are both conceived of as female figures and both as exercising dominion. They stand face to face, and each recognizes as her enemy the other. The one has established her dominion. Sin hath reigned. The other is fighting to establish hers, that grace might reign. And the struggle is going on between them, not only on the wide field of the world, but in the narrow lists of the heart of each one of us. Sin reigns. The truth that underlies that solemn picture is plain enough. However unwelcome these truths may be to some of us, and however remote from the construction of the universe which many of us are disposed to take. Now let us understand our terms. Suppose a man commits a theft. You may describe it from three different points of view. He has thereby broken the law of the land, and when we are thinking about that, we call it crime. He has also broken the law of morality, as we call it, and when we are looking at his deed from that point of view, we call it vice. Is that all? He has broken something else. He has broken the law of God. And when we look at it from that point of view, we call it sin. Now, there are a great many things which are sins that are not crimes. 
And with due limitations, I might venture to say that there are some things which are sins that are not to be qualified as vices. Sin implies God. The psalmist was quite right when he said, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Although he was confessing a foul injury he had done to Bathsheba and a glaring crime that he had committed against Uriah, it was as to God and in reference to him only that his crime and his vice darkened and solidified into sin. And what is it in our actions or in ourselves considered in reference to God that makes our actions sins and ourselves sinners? Remember the prodigal son? Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. There you have it all. He went away and wasted his substance in riotous living. To claim myself for my own. To act independently of or contrary to the will of God. To try to shake myself clear of him. To have nothing to do with him, even though it be mere forgetfulness and negligence and in all my ways to comport myself as if I had no relations of dependence on and submission to him, that is sin. And there may be that oblivion or rebellion, not only in the gross, vulgar acts which the law calls crimes, or in those which conscience declares to be vices, but also in many things which, looked at from a lower point of view, may be fair and pure and noble. If there is this assertion of self in them, or oblivion of God and his will in them, I know not how we are to escape the conclusion that even these fall under the class of sins. For there can be no act or thought truly worthy of a man, situated and circumstanced as we are, which has not for the very core and animating motive of it a reference to God. Now when I come and say, as my Bible teaches me to say, that this is the deepest view of the state of humanity, that sin reigns, I do not wish to fall into the exaggerations by which sometimes that statement has been darkened and discredited. But I do want to press upon you, dear brethren, this as a matter of personal experience, that wherever there is a heart that loves and leaves God out, and wherever there is a will that resolves, determines, impels to action, and does not bow itself before him, and wherever there are hands that labor or feet that run at tasks and in paths self-chosen and unconsecrated by reference to our Father in heaven, no matter how great and beautiful subsidiary lusters may light up their deeds, the very heart of them all is transgression of the law of God. For this and nothing else or less is his law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. I do not charge you with crimes. You know how far it would be right to charge you with vices. I do not charge you with anything, but I pray you to come with me and confess we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I suppose I need not dwell upon the difficulty of getting a lodgment for this conviction in men's hearts. There is no sadder and no more conclusive proof 
of the tremendous power of sin over us than that it has lulled us into unconsciousness, hard to be broken of its own presence and existence. Oh, dear brethren, you may call this theology, but it is a simple statement of the facts of our condition. Sin hath reigned. And now turn to the other picture, that grace might reign. Then there is an antagonistic power that rises up to confront the widespread dominion of this anarch of old. And this queen comes with 20,000 to war against her that hath but 10,000 on her side. Again, I say, let us understand our terms. I suppose there are few of the key words of the New Testament which have lost more of their radiance, like quicksilver, by exposure to the air during the centuries than that great word grace, which is always on the lips of this apostle and to him had music in its sound and which to so many of us is a piece of dead doctrine associated with certain high Calvinistic theories which we enlightened people have long ago grown beyond and got rid of. Perhaps Paul was more right than we when his heart leaped up within him at the very thought of all which he saw to lie palpitating and throbbing with eager desire to bless men in that great word, grace. What does he mean by it? Let me put it into the shortest possible terms. This antagonist queen is nothing but the love of God radiating out forever to us inferior creatures who by reason of our sinfulness have deserved something widely different. Sin stands there, a hideous hag, though a queen. Grace stands here in all her gestures, dignity and love, fair and self-communicative, though a sovereign. The love of God in exercise to sinful men, that is what the New Testament means by grace. And is it not a great thought? Notice, for further elucidation of the apostle's concept, how he sacrifices the verbal correctness of his antithesis in order to get to the real opposition. What is the opposite of sin? Righteousness. Well, why does he not say then that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might righteousness reign unto life? Why? Because it is not man or anything in man that can be the true antagonist of and victor over the reigning sin of humanity. But God himself comes into the field, and only he is the foe that sin dreads. That is to say, the only hope for a sin-tyrannized world is in the outthrob of the love of the great heart of God. For... Notice the weapon with which he fights man's transgression. If I may vary the figure for a moment, it is only subordinately punishment or law or threatening or the revelation of the wickedness of the transgression. All these have their places, but they are secondary places. The thing that will conquer a world's wickedness is nothing else but the manifested love of God. Only the patient shining down of the sun will ever melt the icebergs that float in all our hearts. And wonderful and blessed it is to think that 
in whatsoever aspects man's sin may have been an interruption and a contradiction of the divine purpose. Out of the evil has come a good, that the more obdurate and universal the rebellion, the more has it evoked a deeper and more wondrous tenderness. The blacker the thundercloud, the brighter glows the rainbow that is flung across it. So these two confront each other, the one settled in her established throne, fierce as ten furies, terrible as hell, the other coming on her adventurous errand to conquer the world to herself and to banish the foul tyranny under which men groan. Sin hath reigned. Grace is on her way to her dominion. Now I must interject at this point that the ultimate triumph of grace will come from the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. It is not as though there were in the hearts of men the possibility of accepting little by little to surrender their delight at being ruled by sin in order to accept the greater delight of being ruled by Christ. The Adamic nature cannot possibly conceive that the reign of Christ is to be preferred to the reign of sin. The Adam nature knows that it grasped after sovereignty in its own right and that if Christ is to reign, self must be crucified. This fact and act, Adam will never accept of his own will. If grace were not irresistible, there would be no rule of sovereign grace. And the ultimate reign of Queen Grace will come when he, whose right it is to reign, shall lay aside the robes of his present mediatorial work and shall gird upon his thigh the sword of divine justice and shall come forth to rule with a rod of iron and to dash his enemies to pieces as a potter's vessel. Until that moment, the reign of life can exist only in the hearts of those individuals who are made partakers of the divine nature through quickening life, which the Lord Jesus Christ communicates to us. Then in the second place, let us notice the gifts of these two queens to their subjects. What does death give you? And what does grace offer you? Sin hath reigned in death, as the accurate translation has it. Grace reigns unto eternal life. The one has established her dominion and its results are wrought out. Her reign is, as it were, a reign in a cemetery. And her subjects are dead. Sin reigns, says Paul, and for proof points to the fact that men die. I ask you to remember that when the Bible says that death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, it does not merely mean the physical fact of dissolution, but it means that fact, along with the accompaniments of it and the forerunners of it in men's consciences. The sting of death is sin, says Paul in another place, by which he implies, I presume, that if it were not for the fact of alienation from God and opposition to his holy will, men might lie down and die as placidly as an animal does and might strip themselves for it as for a bed, that longing they'd been sick for. But it is not so much the fact of physical death with its accompaniments, which Paul is thinking about when he says that sin reigns in death, as it is that solemn truth which he is always reiterating, and which I pray you, dear friends, to lay to heart, that whatever activity there may be in the life of a man who has rent himself away from dependence upon God, however vigorous his brain, however active his hand, 
however full charged with other interests his life, in the very depth of it, it is a living death, and the right name for it is death. So this is sin's gift, that over our whole nature there comes mortality and decay, and that they who live as her subjects are dead whilst they live. Dear brethren, that may be figurative, but it seems to me that it is absurd for you to run away from such thoughts, shrug your shoulders, and say, old-fashioned Calvinistic theology. It is simply putting into a vivid form the facts of your life and of your condition in relation to God if you are the subjects of sin. Then, on the other hand, the other queenly figure has her hands filled with one great gift which, like the fatal bestowment which sin gives to her subjects, has two aspects, a present and a future one. Life, which is given in our redemption from death and sin, and in union with God, that is the present gift that the love of God holds out to every one of us. Life, that life in its very incompleteness here, carries in itself the prophecy of its own completion hereafter, in a higher form and world, just as truly as the bud is the prophet of the flower and of the fruit, just as truly as a half-reared building is the prophecy of its own completion when the roof tree is put upon it. Third, how this queenly grace gives her gifts. You observe that the apostle, as is his custom, I was going to say, gets himself entangled in a couple of almost parenthetical or at all events subsidiary sentences. He inserts two qualifications, through righteousness, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does he mean by these when he says that grace gives us life through righteousness and through Jesus Christ? I have gone over this ground at some length in all the studies that have set forth the nature of God's working in righteousness to bestow life. It may be summarized by pointing once more to the cross of Jesus Christ. For the righteousness which is mentioned here is not human righteousness, either by the works of man or produced in man by God after the impartation of life. This is not the righteousness of sanctification. This is the righteousness of justification. It is the righteousness that was inherent in the nature of God that made it necessary for Christ to die in order that grace might flow freely without any hindrances whatsoever. He means that whilst there is no life without righteousness, there is no righteousness without God's gift. And the other subsidiary clause completes the thought through Christ. In him is all the grace, the manifest love of God gathered together. It is not diffused as the nebulous light in some chaotic, incipient system, but it is gathered into a sun that is set in the center in order that it may pour down warmth and life upon its circling planets. The grace of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him is life eternal. Therefore, if we desire to possess it, we must possess him in him is righteousness. Therefore, if we desire our own foulness to be changed into the holiness which shall see God, we must go to Jesus Christ. Grace reigns in life, but it is life through righteousness, which is through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, brother, my message and my petition to each of you are knit yourself to him by faith in him.
Then he who is full of grace and truth will come to you and coming will bring in his hands a righteousness and life eternal. If only we rest ourselves on him and keep ourselves close in touch with him, then we shall be delivered from the tyranny of the darkness and translated into the kingdom of the son of his love. This message is as pertinent to its hearers as it was when it was first delivered through St. Paul and as it has been with every expositor throughout history. If time shall yet last, there will be preachers of the gospel of grace who will dig among the books of the past and discover that the testimony of all of the men of grace is the same testimony. It is all of grace. We have nothing but death, but his life through Christ banishes death, and in that life that comes from the death of the cross, we have found life eternal and testify of our finding it to those who will listen. God loves you. Christ died for you. Believe in Christ. And our God, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this message to each heart and that many may be brought closer to thee that grace may reign. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Sin holds countless souls in its tyrannical grip. But every day, God is bringing new citizens into the eternal kingdom of His Son by the irresistible power of His sovereign grace. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Sin vs. Grace. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Sin vs. Grace, or simply request message number R5-52. We'd also like to make available to you our free booklet entitled, Who's Choosing Whom? Do you view God as patiently waiting in heaven, hoping that people will turn to Him? If so, this free booklet will open your eyes to an amazing biblical truth. Long before you chose to follow the Lord, He chose you for salvation and worked in your life to bring you to Himself. Far from creating confusion or controversy, the doctrine of election and God's sovereign grace should fill us with confidence and adoration for our Lord, who saves to the uttermost. Ask for your free copy of Who's Choosing Whom when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call us toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. 
Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.